Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to the fifth and final episode of the first series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. This time we look at how to build a people analytics team in a global organization. Being the global head of people analytics in a large multinational is an exciting, but at the same time challenging role. Building and structuring the team, developing your operating model, identifying the right projects and business sponsors, as well as turning insights into outcomes, which is some of the key responsibilities involved. Factor in a new HR system that will go live simultaneously in over 80 countries to 250,000 employees, and you really have a challenge on your hands. Our guest today faced this mountain and climbed successfully to the summit. Eden Brick combines being Group Head of People Analytics with the role of Chief Data Officer for HR at HSBC. He is one of the leading and most respected leaders in the people analytics space, and I always enjoy speaking to him. In our podcast, Eden and I discuss the highlights and key learnings from the recent implementation of SAP success factors at HSBC and how this is helping drive people analytics. We look at what is involved in the Chief Data Officer for HR role, a role that is growing in a number of organizations around the world. Eden also shares insights on how he has built and structured the people analytics team at HSBC, including the mix between global and local delivery, key challenges encountered, and details of a couple of interesting projects the team has delivered. Eden also talks about what excites him most about people analytics, along with his biggest concern. And as usual with the Digital HR Leaders podcast, we look at how the role of HR will evolve by 2025. This episode is a must listen for anyone working in or interested in the people analytics space, as well as anyone about to embark on or currently involved in in an HR transformation. Before we get started, a brief word from our sponsor for this series of five episodes of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Support is brought to you by CultureAmp. CultureAmp is the world's largest people and culture platform that helps companies take action to improve employee engagement, retention and performance. CultureAmp is a culture-first certified B Corporation used by over 2,100 customers, including brands such as Airbnb, Kind Snacks, Autotrader, Salesforce, Slack and McDonald's. Start developing a deep understanding of your employees' experience today by visiting cultureamp.com. That's cultureamp.com. Eden, welcome to the Digital HR Leader Show. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Would you like to give yourself an introduction to yourself, your role, and also sure. your vision around people analytics as well? So, uh, Eden Britt, obviously. Uh, <laughs> I am at HSBC. I've been there for the last three years. And I have a relatively broad mandate. So, my role is essentially split into two different areas. I look after the people analytics function and I look after the Chief Data Office. So I'm Chief Data, Chief Data Officer for HR. And my background um, is really 20 years in HR. I've done a number of different roles. I started in recruitment, I've worked in uh, different parts of human resources, and I've spent 15 years of my career outside of the UK. So I worked in the Middle East for nine years and in Dubai. I was working with Cisco Systems, and then I moved to Singapore and I joined Standard Chartered Bank. And when I was in Singapore, it was really where I moved into the analytics space. So from a, 
early age, I've been interested in computers. I actually did a degree that was combined uh, information technology with mm. classical music, which oh, wow. which is quite interesting. It's quite a strange double major. But on reflection now, um, the, the things that we learn as coders in 91 to 94, before the internet, pre-Netscape and uh, what we know as the internet today, we learned SQL coding, we learned um, object-oriented coding, and we learned database programming on VAX, VMS, mainframe type um, type platforms. And it's interesting that that skill set is really what's come back now in, to help with um, uh, large data projects, certainly managing uh, bigger data sets, the, the understanding of how to code, particularly Python and R and other things has really helped. And I think from a music perspective, there is a lot of evidence that suggests that musicians' brains work in slightly different ways, and I think pattern recognition plays mm. a great part in the investigative, the um, detective part of analytics. So I think that that balance of IT, uh, the pattern recognition, music, musicality part, and then the experience in the context of HR has led me to be in a position that um, means that I really enjoy the role that I'm doing. It's great. I, what I must do is I must send you an article that Thomas Rasmussen wrote about the link between analytics and music. Right, I'll, exactly. I'll send that to you awesome. later on. Um, you've, you've been, as you said, you've been at HSBC for over three years now, mm -hmm. and obviously you've had a, a small matter of a big success factor right. implementation, exactly. uh, which I think you completed last October. Uh, yeah, we went live in August actually, and then we came out of hypercare in October. So we had a period of making sure that everything was working in a live environment, but then we declared success in around about October. And you did it big bang? We did. So we had a choice, like most people do. You can either roll out in phases or you can think about what the ultimate goal is for moving to a, a new platform. So, so for us, that was really around the experience of the employee, making sure that we had a platform that enabled us to take advantage of a lot of the changes in HR tech as we go forward. And I think when you're in an on-premise um, platform like we were before in Oracle PeopleSoft, um, you, you tend to have customized the platform quite a lot in different markets to, mm. um, to cater for different laws and different uh, ways of working. And the beauty of, work, of moving to a cloud environment uh, helps you to get onto much more standard processes. And then you tend to configure the environment rather than customize the environment. And then the, the benefit of that is that the employee gets a similar experience and you can leverage things like mobile and, and other uh, functionality. And so for us, we took the decision that what we would do is we would re-engineer all of our processes um, and, and we really go end-to-end -end through country localization, uh, all of the global services that we offer within HR, and then ensure that we, we configured the environment correctly. But we'd also thought about what is the simplification that we need to do in HR to make sure that we are uh, making sure that everything works, but also everything joins up. So yeah. the way I think about the HR life cycle is the employee life cycle. Somebody enters an applicant or a candidate, they become an employee, they go through some mandatory initial learning, and then we do the normal performance management cycle, succession mm. planning, career, uh, et cetera. And so by thinking about processes around the, the employee life cycle, it really helps us to get that right. So to do that properly, we decided Big Bang would be the way to go. The, the balance of that is that you have a lot of work to do in a lot of different countries. And so you know we're present in plus over 60 countries, and uh, we have 
different entities within those countries that makes it even more complicated. Cool. So to make sure that we were, we were prepared, you know, this this was a, a two and a half to three year program of work. And I think at the point we went live, we were the largest SAP implementation that went live in a big bang approach. I think. Um, so uh, that, that for us, I think whilst it was a lot of work, it ended up being a great in a great place for us. Well, congratulations. Thank you. You've come out the other side. Um, and from a people analytics perspective, you know, what benefit is that is that implementation now offering you? So the good thing about it is that we managed to um, put a report in an analytics work stream as part of the, the go live. So it's not technically part of the SAP uh, product suite. We didn't take the workforce analytics solution from from SAP, we decided we we're going to build our own, mm. but um, we put it as a work stream as part of that implementation. And so, what we were able to do was get the data structures correct from the beginning. And when you're moving from one environment to another environment, one of the difficulties is taking data that was in one structure and mm. putting it into a different structure. So, the amount of data mapping, the amount of configuration that we needed to do the amount of uh, business validation on data that we needed to do meant that at GoLive, our data was probably the best that it had been in at least the last 10 years. Now, of course, that will degrade over time mm. if we don't get the governance and the quality assurance processes right. But at the point of GoLive, we had great data uh, in a new platform that was on a new environment, a new infrastructure, and we had built from scratch the reporting uh, instance right from uh, foundation, new schema, new import from the new platform and then built a BI tool on top of it. So from uh, the data that we can now use both from a reporting perspective and for other anal analytics uh, work, it puts us in a really, really good space. Yeah, I think it's a great example of, because I think I've seen so many organisations go through these big implementations, whether it's SAP or, or one of the other big players in that space, and they've not really considered the data and the analytics part until after they've implemented. That's right. And you did it actually throughout the three years. Yeah, and it wasn't easy. And uh, the data side is quite difficult, right? So you've got to get around the HR function. You've got to help have people understand why data is important. You've got to get them to think about what reports they need in the future and for what purpose. And a lot of the time, uh, the, the energy is wasted not on the build part, the development part. The energy is wasted in trying to... Um, Get get the, the kind of ratification of the request, right? So the quicker and more structured that you can have the, the conversation with the end user to help them understand that the solution is not to rebuild the Excel spreadsheet that they hold in their hand, but the uh, the investment in time at that point will help you way you know way, way better in the development stage. So I think it's really important if you can get it in, you know, really early in that journey. So talking about data, Eden, in your introduction, you explained that one of your two roles is Chief Data Officer for HR. Now, what's actually involved in that role? Because there's not many people who've got those roles currently in the function. Yeah, and I think this is part of the evolution of HR when it starts to take data a bit more seriously. So if I split the role into really three practice areas, the first area is data governance, and that includes things like the ownership of data within yeah. HR, and predominantly that will be a process so uh, a, a subject matter expert like recruitment would also own the data that's in their recruitment platform and also the data elements that uh, get created through that process. And then if you think about the way that data flows through the, uh, the systems and the organization, the recruitment process is the originator of most data in HR, uh, which creates from a candidate record an employee record. Yeah. And it's really important that we understand what data gets created by whom. And then if we have problems with that data later, 
need to go back to to look at the process or the integrations that might have caused the problems. So that first area of data governance is really important, and it's um, it's the role that runs the data governance forum in HR. It's the role that interacts with the wider bank governance teams. Uh, it's the role that defines policy and makes sure that we implement those policies in the function. The second practice area is data quality and assurance. So this is how we measure proactively data quality issues. The governance people run a data dictionary. They engage with the data owner. They agree the threshold of acceptability of data. They agree the logic that's required for measuring quality. So it could be completeness, it might be validity, it may be accuracy possibly consistency between different applications. And the data quality team will take that data from the data dictionary and they'll apply that logic across our data set and, and show back to the HR function the quality of data in which we operate. The good thing about that is that we can then uh, look at the processes that we run in the function and then we can get a sense of how much operational resource is required to run that service. So if you take payroll, for example, we can measure the accuracy rate of payroll and that might be when we move money into someone's bank account, did we pay them accurately? Well, for most organizations, we do that really well. Right? Yeah. So we've got 250,000 people in the bank. We pay them a quarter of a million people every month or every two weeks in the US, and we do it really well. But if you were to go back a few steps in the payroll process and we extract the payroll run early in the month and we pay it 10 days later, what work happens between the initial extract and the payroll run? And that's where the operational effort comes. So if the payroll team receive data that's of a poor quality, they have to do a huge amount of work to go and fill in the gaps or to make sure that we don't do anything wrong. Mm. So the payroll accuracy works at the end. So that's the job of the data quality team is to go and proactively look at that data, give the heads up to the payroll function, for example, to let them know that we've got some issues in certain areas. That team also does assurance and issue management. So when we do find problems, then part of their role is to go and engage with countries or businesses or right to employees or to manage the IT function or the um, SAP configuration team to understand why there are issues being created and then make sure that we've got a program of activity around fixing it to improve the data. And then the third practice is data architecture. So the architecture team are responsible for understanding the lineage of data, the flow, where we send it to, uh, which other systems downstream in the bank outside of HR we, we send data to, and then externally uh, to the organization where we might send data to. And then over the top of that sits privacy, which really sits in that first practice of governance, but privacy uh, and sensitivity of data really flow through everything that we do. So when we understand where we send data to, and we understand obviously in Europe, GDPR, but in many other countries, we've got similar uh, regulations around uh, privacy and data protection, then we need to understand who's got the data, what do they do with it, where do they store it, uh, how do they change it, how long do they keep it, and if we do have to comply to any regulations around uh, the removal of data or purging of data, we know where the data is and how to do it. So it's actually quite complicated yeah. in that CDO role, but the, the great thing about it is if we get the data in the right place, we've got great um, return on investment back to HR to help the function to, to run its processes more efficiently. But for my people analytics function, we get much better data to be able to use to do analytics uh, activity. So uh, yeah, it works out really well. Which leads us on to your, your other role as right. group head of people analytics at the bank. Mm. And obviously, as you said, you've been, been in that role now for, for three years. Yep. You know, what are, the, what are the key services that your team provides to the, to the business? Yeah, well, 
luckily I have three practices in that area as well, right? So, uh, you know, to simplify what we deliver, uh, we think about it as global services. So in the same way that we run a CDO function, people analytics function is split into three areas. And the reason I did that is that if, if we're not really clear on what service we offer and who gets to use that service, it's very difficult to, uh, to offer any form of consistency. Yeah. So I split into three different, different practice areas. Broadly, the majority of HR and uh, managers and business leaders will use a reporting and BI service. And so for HSBC, I also own reporting uh, and business intelligence. I have a leader who, who runs that. We have a an Oracle OBIE platform that we leverage for enterprise reporting. Um, and that's built on that schema that we built from the this SAP implementation yeah. where, where we rebuilt the data sets. But we leverage that for large-scale, near real-time information. And, and when I think of reporting, I think about run. Run the bank through data, operational data that helps you to make better decisions. And so we've got 46,000 people who have access to that tool. Every line manager in the bank, 38,000 of them, will get access to it. And they get to then make decisions about their employees from the data that we show through that, which is a really great way mm. of putting data into the hands of the line managers, making them better managers. And we've obviously got a lot of them. So it really helps us to make sure that the employees are um, having, you know, having a great relationship with their manager and the managers understand who their employees are. And that platform doesn't only count the number of people we've got, it also tells them about notable events like birthdays coming up and new joiners so that the manager can get prepared for new joiners coming in. So that platform services the HR community, line manager community, CFOs, COOs with near real-time information and it refreshes daily from the SAP platform. Second practice area is more of a workforce management advisory practice. So it's uh, a business facing analytics to the business lines. It's uh, HR global service analytics team. So who faces off to recruitment and success and planning, benefits, reward, etc. cetera. Uh, it is the, the team that looks after strategic workforce planning and operational workforce planning. And they also look after organizational design and organizational effectiveness. And uh, those areas together really, for me, fit under workforce advisory, workforce management. Yep. It helps us to have a better conversation with the business than them asking for reports. Yep. And if you don't offer a service that helps the businesses understand how they're structured, um, where there are opportunities for more efficiency, then what we found in the past was we were asked lots of questions that were just reporting questions based in a different way. And then the third practice area is data science. So I've just hired a new head of data science who uh, joined us in January. Already some really great work that's coming out of that team. And this is where I'm thinking about optimization. I'm thinking about prediction, uh, how we embed automation across HR, how we think about using people data in different ways uh, to help us to make the organization more profitable, more productive, uh, more engaged workforce. So that team, whilst in its infancy now, is an extension from a lot of advanced analytics work we've been doing over the last three years. So we're not new to this space, but what we've done is formalize that with a separate practice area, which now has to stand itself up in communication out to the organization, the HRX Co, and brand itself as a data science team. Right. And I know you've got a reasonably large team across mm -hmm. those three those three areas. Mm -hmm. How do you structure that team between sort of centralized delivery and, and localized? That's a great question. And I, I can't say I've necessarily got it right, but I'll tell you what we do today and probably the direction that we're heading in. So, okay. um, so we have a, a, a split of onshore and offshore resource. We've got regional and country teams that manage 
requirements for the regions and countries, which are usually regulatory in nature. Mm. And being a bank, we have a huge amount of regulations, particularly in markets like Hong Kong, Singapore, UK, the US. So we have teams that are that are based in those locations. We have a group team that's based in the UK, which is my management team, and also uh, their delivery teams around global programs and global work that we do. And then we have a shared service centre which sits in Bangalore, which is part of our global analytics centre for the bank. So every business line has an analytics team that's in a shared service centre, and we can leverage resource and thinking and best practice out of that. So that's how we we are um, structured today. The question that I'm asking myself is how big does a team need to be to service an organisation of our size? And that's where I think we have challenges, because I, I don't think there's any formula to define what that is. The question comes down to how much bespoke work will you deliver and how much automation will you deliver? And because we're on that journey, we're probably not at the end state yet, but I think in the future we'll have a combination of probably uh, a shared service coverage that follows the sun a little bit more rather than relying solely on, on, on India. And that's, and that's because we have to work you know, outside of hours sometimes with the team in Bangalore. And, uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean we're covered in markets like Mexico and Latin America um, when we're outside of the India time zone. Um, it also means that we can probably leverage different skills in different locations when we think about um, either language skills or technology skills, where would we look at different service areas. Uh, but as we as we build out our BI platform and as we expand that to become mobile enabled and we expand it to be uh, a tool that's more for the executive user versus for the volume user, yeah. as we build that practice out, I think we probably need less people doing reporting activity, which means the volume of, of people reduce, but we probably need much more capable people to do better analytics and answer the why question. And so that shift in, in capability and, and capacity, I think, will mean that we'll, we will shift the current, current coverage model that we have. I think you're right. I mean, it's no, there's no magic formula no. for how many people you should have in your team, depending on how big your organisation is, because it depends on so many different variables. And I think there's a lot of comparing like for like, and it's not. It's like comparing apples with pears, because some teams don't have responsibility for reporting. Other teams aren't in a regulatory industry, such as you. So, uh, you know, I think... You can learn. You can be inspired by what others are doing, but then you have to apply it within your own organisation, of course. So yeah, and I think that's one of the things that I like about the Insight Two 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 thing that we're obviously members of is that whilst other organisations won't have the exact answer, mm. it's not just me sitting at my desk thinking of the solution. I can share it with people who've got similar problems, and they can help me to think through the answer. I've still got to make the ultimate decision. I still carry the ultimate risk. I still carry the budget requirements for that. But it does help me to bounce ideas off other organizations. And there's a real uh, synergy between uh, organizations that are regulated, like pharmaceutical, like telco, like banking. So it doesn't have to be another bank that I lean on. I can lean on anyone who's working within those environments. And I think you're right. And I think the great thing about our community and people analytics community is everyone's actually quite open to sharing and collaborating together, yeah, um, and long may it continue. Exactly, it's great. I love the way you structured the team, and obviously built a lot of capability over the last three years. Can you give us some idea of some interesting projects that the team, the team have delivered over the last uh, during that time? Yeah, uh, and we've we've done a lot of stuff that is both. Um, 
what I would say is probably good ROI for the organization, they would be around things like organizational effectiveness. So I think for anyone who's trying to get into more progressive analytics, it's not quite data science yet, but it's more than just a static report of, mm. of number of people or count of transactions. I think the org effectiveness piece is really interesting. So you can quite easily structure your organization in layers or in different hierarchies to take a look at how the, how the organization's built. And it's quite easy to see um, complexities within that. So some of the things that we look at are senior grades that are low down in the layer structure within the bank. Uh, we look at spans and control, obviously, to see where we may have um, layers that are not necessarily working the most efficiently. We've also done things from a network analysis or graph graphing of uh, network analysis. So we take the organization, and it's quite difficult with, a, with an organization our size to do this, mm. but we put the organization into a node structure where we're using either the position hierarchy or the functional management hierarchy to set that node structure. But once you've got it in a, in a graph database, what it helps you do is to do all kinds of calculations and questions that you couldn't necessarily do in a relationship database. So when we layer onto a graph structure, if you imagine a node structure of uh, nodes split out with the most senior CEO at the top and the breakout of, of those nodes down through the organization, then as we go down each layer and we layer on top through the, the use of color or shape, we can start to see where the regional roles are, where certain activity is done. And so that really helps us to understand the structure of the organization. That helps the business understand particularly tough, tough questions around, well, what, why are you built like that? Is it by design? Is it by osmosis? You yeah, know, it's just yeah. happened over time. Uh, you know, the, 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 this thing has just, has just grown that way. And when you talk to businesses about those questions, it's much easier to go with something that you found than a blank sheet of paper and ask, to, ask yeah. an open question of, what's your biggest challenge and let me help, help solve for it. So I think those are areas that are quite interesting and I think we're getting really good feedback from, from the organization on that. Other areas that we've done recently, uh, we did a great project on looking at Glassdoor information. So there's an API available for Glassdoor, which is essentially a URL where you append certain text to it and you send that out uh, to the Glassdoor API and it will send you back some information on the uh, external um, results for a five-point scale of the, the how your CEO is doing, how your senior leadership is doing, um, their view on benefits within the organization. And so if you take that snapshot of your company every three, six months, mm. quarter, whatever, you can start to see if there's an external change and then you can look to um, whilst it's not in the most, the most granular format, you can look at similar patterns to your internal surveys and then uh, get a, a sense of the internal lens or the internal voice against the external voice. And so we did that, but then we wrote a Python script that helped us to use that API to go out and look at 100 other organizations within our sector and outside of our sector so that we could pull this data back. You get it back, it's a, it's a, a, a REST API with a JSON uh, uh, structure that comes back for anyone who's technical and understands that. But what it means is it's a structured format we can then read into a data set that then we can look at and we can start to do some analysis on. So that was quite cool. Uh, the other thing that I'm really excited about that we've been doing in the past few months is a lot of uh, natural language processing yep. on unstructured data sets where we've asked specific questions. They could be the engagement questions, but they could also be information around uh, the, the pay and reward program that we've just been through for, for end of year or, or other pulse surveys that we run. So we do it anonymously, but what we look to do is cluster 
the certain phrases into two, three, and four word groups, and then we look for nouns, and then we look to try to cluster them into some form of um, view of what the what the what the pulse of the of the uh, people are saying, and that's actually working out really well. So again, a Python project. Uh, leveraging open source so it doesn't cost anything, leveraging uh, packages that you can download uh, as part of Python that take advantage of some of the things that other people have done, uh, particularly where you want to use uh, packages that already recognize nouns and, and other yep. words and joiner words and things that it might want to ignore so that you're really focusing on the value of those. So I think those are some really exciting, exciting projects. What, what I would say though is the challenge with doing that work is that they're there's not a lot of people who can either do that work, or if they can, they don't necessarily want to work for a bank, or if they do, they want to be a quant, they don't want to work in HR. So so I'm like third down the list, right, <laughs> of trying to find yeah. people who want to work in a bank, who want to work in the HR function. So I think we are, I wouldn't say we're necessarily struggling to find resources, but there is there is a, um, a lack of, of resource that comes with contextual understanding of HR. I'm not too concerned about that, because you can teach it but have the ability to technically code the solution, but also to look at the data and then package it up to be able to, um, to put into a research paper or to have a conversation with a stakeholder. And I think when you look at the skills that you need in this space to do that interesting work, a lot of people talk about storytelling. I don't think it's storytelling. I think it's about packaging. It's about understanding that the data scientist will produce the peer review journal article, yep. which is quite technical. What you want to deliver that into the organization is the New York Times journalist who yep. turns it into the story, the packaging of that story with the nice infographic on the front that probably doesn't mean anything as a graphic to use as a, as a, a, as a replacement for a bar chart, but it's interesting enough to make people want to read the research. And then the most important part is the recommendation yeah. and then the implementation, of or, course. or at least the, the let's try that in this part of the world and not this part and we'll do some basic A-B testing. Yeah. So I think there's some challenges in trying to do this interesting stuff, but the NLP, the Glassdoor stuff, I would say if you've got people who have basic Python experience and can leverage APIs or can leverage some pre-built packages, then it's a really good place to start. And also one of the you know excuses that I get given from HR leaders why they can't do analytics is that their internal data isn't good enough. Right. Well, as you, the Glassdoor example, you're using external data yeah. to actually... So, so that's, a, that's, a, that's a kind of a, a bit of a misconception, I think. So... If you say your data is not good enough, you're probably still thinking about operational reporting. Yeah, I think I right? agree. And so data is always good enough to do something. Well, perhaps not always, but but most of the time you can you can look at the data, you can do a very quick discovery, you can eliminate the known outliers, you can elim eliminate known data quality issues, you can segment the data down to a data set that is of good enough quality, and then you can use it. And for most of the projects that we do, we substitute data anyway. So whilst it might be real data, if we want to do an anonymous data activity, if we're doing something around machine learning, what we might do is substitute or mask all the data anyway. So, um, so you know, for me, that, that, that I, I don't think that's necessarily a big problem if you're thinking about this in a as a as a data person, not yeah. as an Excel person. Yeah, and I think a lot of those 
those challenges kept come back from people who aren't actually doing the work. Yeah. So because they lack of understanding. I would just say to to anybody, be brave. Try and do something. You never know what you'll find. You can approach this activity in one of two ways. You can either have a hypothesis and try to prove or disprove it, or you can have some data and go find something interesting and tell people what you found. The aha moment that you found in the data. Either either at the beginning of the journey is good enough. More curiosity in HR. More curiosity, absolutely. So what's next? What's on the roadmap for the next 12 to 18 months? So um, so for us, we are the services that I talked about, we're obviously going to get deeper into those services. So from a CDO perspective, the uh, regulatory landscape is increasing. We need to obviously continue with things like GDPR. And, and, and when I think about GDPR, whilst we've got a European regulation that means that we need to do better at data protection, for an organization our size, well, why wouldn't we offer the same data protection to all employees, no matter okay. what country you're in, right? So I think we've got a service that we need to offer as an organization, and so we'll be continuing to look at the better ways to evolve that, get the data better. Um, the the analytics space, uh, the data science space practice is really, really interesting. We'll definitely do more in that. We are targeting to release a number of research articles this year, internal research articles. We're working with a couple of external folks, so we're doing some work with the IBM Data Science Elite team. We are looking uh, to do some work with the Alan Turing Institute out of the British Library, which is the think tank for um, artificial intelligence and machine learning for for the government. So we're we're trying to do stuff in that space. We're trying to leverage other thought leadership to help us to think this through. Um, As we go on from there, I think that the obvious way that people analytics can... Uh, help the organization is to move beyond HR analytics. So I truly believe that people analytics is bigger than HR analytics. Getting external data, getting non-HR data to help us answer some of the bigger business problems and some of the the people constraints within those problems is something that we should look at. But then how do we uh, automate things for the function? So a great thing that I like to talk about is, if you think about uh, Netflix, so you think about the uh, the homepage of Netflix, right? It's pretty simple. It's got some indication of things that you've watched before and then things that you might want to watch. And then Netflix have got north of 130 million uh, users and they've got north of 130 million homepages, mm. right? Because every homepage that you land on is built specifically for the user that lands. So why wouldn't we as an HR function have an HR landing page that is specific to every employee in the organization? What they like, what people who look like them they like where you are in your career what do other people look at where people who progress through the stage that you're at what did they look at and what helped them to to progress so i think we should be thinking about how we leverage the data to be able to make that employee journey a lot better and that's much more than the processes and services that we run in hr so i think that's probably a bit further away than 18 months but that's definitely the direction that we're going as we think these things through so actually, if we look a little bit outside the bank now and look at people analytics in general terms, you know, what really excites you about people analytics and what it could potentially deliver in the future? Yeah, I think, I think there's an obvious opportunity for us to think about skills for the future and the future of work. Uh, lots of organisations will need different types of people, not necessarily less people, but different types of people in the future. And the question that we should be asking ourselves is, what skills... Do we have today? What skills do we need for the future? Mm. Do any of our learning programs today help us to define those skills, to to build those skills now? Do we even know what skills people have? 
Because a lot of the challenge with people, uh, employees within an organization, is that unless you've got a robust internal talent profile, then your view of the employee is the job that they do and your assumed skill set or competency set around that job. And one of the things that we found is that when we go out and ask for people with project management skills, we find people who've got project management certifications in roles that don't even need project management. Yeah. And so we should be able to offer that opportunity. But for future skills, particularly where we may automate, what I'm seeing externally elsewhere is that organizations that are doing this well are really focusing on that gap and understanding how they leverage their current platforms, their uh, future budget and cycles, their uh, strategic workforce plans to be able to ensure that they are heading down the path now to identify the skills that they need for the future. Yeah, and actually it's funny because speaking to a lot of your colleagues in other big organizations, it seems to be a big focus area now. Mm. This whole skills for the future is a big challenge for many big organizations around the world. And there's no real HR technology that they tell me they've seen, nor I've seen, that answers that question. Yeah. And it's this whole thing around, do we build, do we buy, do we borrow, or do we bot? Yeah. You know, this holds question around that, and how we help our workforces acquire those new skills, either through exactly. learning, by finding out things like their uh, adeptness, I guess, to, to learning new skills, or their agility rather than learning new skills. So yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting area. Yeah. And, and, and so there's two, two points to add then to that. The, if people are looking for skills and you don't have a competency framework or what I would what I would call a skill and activity taxonomy, then ONET, which is an open source uh, org psych database, which has a huge amount of jobs in there. If you spend the time to match your jobs to the ONET database, it comes with a whole bunch of job description skills. And so if you are looking to, to quickly get a sense of 80-20 view of what skills you need and what activities performed in roles, then ONET database, I think, is a great way, and it's open source, and it's free, right? So we love free stuff. Um, the, the, the second point, I think, is on um, automation and, and bots and other things, which is your fourth B in, in, in your example. When I think about chatbots and, and our NHR, I, I try and think about three different um, options. So we've got the chatbot, which is where most organizations are going now. It's, it's an automation of that tier zero, tier one support level where you ask a question, the, the computer recognizes the type of the question, and then it provides a pre-canned response that's, that's normally from a knowledge database uh, to the employee. Then you've got the next stage of that, which is more about this virtual advisor. So you might ask a question, um, how many days holiday I've got, and the computer will recognize, it will go off and it will look at your um, your amount of holiday and it'll come back and then you might ask a follow-on question would you like to book some holiday yes and then it will give you the url to go to the holiday booking system so there's this continuity in the in the conversation and then the third piece is around virtual assistants so if you think about siri and alexa and these other things that's really about having a conversation and the evolution of that will be the follow-on. So how much holiday do I have? You've got 28 days. Would you like to book some? Yes. Would you like me to uh, give you the weather forecast in the dark place you're going? Or how do I book travel? This is the link for the travel. When are you thinking about traveling? Would you also like to do X, Y, Z? And I think that's where the people analytics team can absolutely help uh, the HR function, whether it's with external vendors, whether it's with uh, proof of concepts around this stuff to think about how we again might get back to that employee experience and help us to build things that help the employee have a better time within the organization. So we cover what excites you about people and I yeah. agree I think those are really exciting areas. What are any concerns about the about the field and where it's headed? 
no such concerns other than ethics and sensitivity, right? I think the more that we leverage machine learning, and I'm in this interesting situation with the chief data officer role where I really don't want to give access to anything. Of course. And I'm managing sensitivity and governance. And I, in the people analytics role where the data science function, you know, potentially would want to use everything. So I have this this role where I'm where I'm trying to balance out both of those. So I think the the questions that we need to ask ourselves are uh, to do to do with ethics. So where are we comfortable leveraging things like machine learning to to um, help us make decisions? And a good example of that is if you were if you built a machine learning algorithm that helped you to choose a better hire, most HR functions would be very open to using that. But if the same algorithm uh, in a restructuring program suggested people that you should that you should restructure or shouldn't be here anymore, then most people wouldn't be comfortable with using that. Mm. Now, essentially, the question is the same. We're using data to make some decisions, and arguably, we probably have more data on the internal people than we do on the external people coming in. So we'll take a CV at face value, and we'll build an algorithm that will help us to make better hiring decisions, but we potentially wouldn't want to do that ethically for other um, decision making. Now, there is no computer uh, says everything's right. There is always a human computer aspect to, the, to this, but both aspects have bias. Inbuilt bias in machine learning, and if you're not careful with inbuilt bias, the, the model will continue to do more of the things that you probably don't want it to do. So, you know, add in things that don't fit the model, hire people that it says don't hire if you really think you should, and, and the model will change and adjust. And then I think the, um, the bias in the human, as we know, is, is not only gender and other things that people think about, but it's taking random data and making something of it. There's a, there's a great uh, thing I read the other day which plots the Dow Jones over time in, in a line graph against the, um, the, me the social media activity of Jennifer Lawrence, and it has a 0.86 correlation. Now, now that's, a, that's an interesting example, but many people do see a lot of, uh, of meaning in very random data sets when we look at this stuff as we start to get access to more data, yeah. and we do make decisions that potentially we should take a step back in. And so that's the only thing that I think we need to be careful yeah, I think as you, I think you going back to one of your earlier points, it's all about the translation interpretation of some right. of these results. I think, and you do need that safety valve in there. I think we've both we've both seen Kazi Kozakrov recently yes. from Google talking, and she said, you know, it's not the machine; it's this decision maker, you know, giving the information to the machine. Absolutely. So we need to. That's what we need to be careful for. Right? So we've got a couple more questions. Um, firstly, you know, our space is is developing really, really fast. You know, how do you learn other than conferences and yeah, good. I mean, I read a huge amount. I think uh, naturally I'm a, I'm a learner. So uh, I pod, do podcasts, as in listen to podcasts. I read a huge amount of books and I attend conferences. I try to get around roundtables and peer groups. So I'm constantly trying to, to get information in to help me think through some of the challenges that we've got. And I do the same with my leadership team. You know, we we have uh, sessions where we discuss your blog, for example. Okay. So we take a look at the most interesting things that people have said in the last month, and then we choose the ones that resonated with the leadership team, and then we'll have some debate around what we think of it. So there, there's a lot of opportunity to get information in. Uh, one of the challenges is that um, 
a lot of the information tends to be quite similar. So I think trying to find out where it is, and that's where I think the curation that you do and others do really help because there is so much of that out there. There is so much but, out but there. But trying to balance uh, a combination of things like people analytics articles with with books. So a great book that I just read, if people are interested, was The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis, who wrote Moneyball and wrote um, the, uh, the, I forget the book's name, the one about the um, the crash with the subprime mortgage. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But that yeah. was made into the movie recently. Made into the film, yeah. But, uh, but that book about the fifth risk is really interesting. So it starts out of the transition of Trump into power, which is, which is interesting. But beyond that, it talks about the Department of Energy and the Department of Agriculture in the US and how they use satellite imagery to look at farming and how they use um, analytics to look at weather forecasting. And so if anyone is inclined in, that, in analytics, is to read books that make you think and investigate Super free economics, free economics, the Steve Dubner, Steve Levitt books are really good, I think, to help you get your, your brain going. Yeah, I think that outside in thing is really important because yeah. if we just bury ourselves in HR stuff, we're not really going to develop as a function, certainly not right. as people analysts. Which leads us on to... And just, uh, just one thing to add uh, on that. So if you, if you think about this, um, if you gave the people analytics function to the economist team in my bank, right, then what would they do differently to what we do when we approach it from an HR perspective? And I think that's we should always ask ourselves that. Mm. If you do that outside in view, what would they try to look at? And I guarantee if you're looking at behavioral economics, it would be a very different way of looking at it than if you've come through the old reporting and analytics mm. journey and you and you and, and reporting has played a big part in the way you think. So um, so you know that outside in view I think is really important. Really important. Which leads us on to the, the last question, which is a question we ask everyone on the Digital HR Leader Show. Where do you think HR will be in 2025? I think that HR as, as an organisation, and this is my opinion, is moving beyond um, the, the kind of the old target operating structure that we saw historically through lots of different um, models but um, there are a few models that we that we know about that are a few years old now. I think what we're seeing with HR is there's this shift into a new way of thinking. Part of that is about the, the journey of the candidate and the experience that's driving that. Part of that is around the separation of the business partner from the consultant to the advisor and how do we structure that business partner activity. Uh, a lot of it will be around the adoption of cloud-based technology, the adoption of mobile, the adoption of um, robotic process automation. And not all HR functions will do this quickly, but I think the larger enterprises will. And there's a balance between efficiency, cost effectiveness, and experience. And I think as long as we lead with experience, mm. then you'll get the efficiency and you'll get the cost saving over time. There is an investment up front, obviously, but the, the engagement factor, the ability for processes to run better longer term, I think is really where we're going. 2025, will we yet be at the Siri for HR or the, the Google goggles for HR? Probably not, you know, but I do think we will see much more improvement in the recruitment process, in the assessment process, in the combination of the, the learning from that data into helping the career journey of the employee through the organisation. Eden, thank you very much for being on the show. You're very welcome. How can people follow you on social media? So uh, they can follow me on LinkedIn, for sure. Uh, Eden Britt, uh, uh, LinkedIn. Uh, I have a Twitter account. Uh, they can follow me on that. And um, if, if need be, just reach out. So reach out on LinkedIn. I'm, a, I'm an open networker. 
uh, ask me a message and uh, I'll always try and respond. Eden, thank you very much. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via iTunes or your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on iTunes and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out myhrfuture.com for the latest news on the future of HR. And you can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter there too. That's all for this week and indeed this series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. But don't worry, we'll be back after a week's break when Series 2 launches on 25th of June. Stay tuned to myhrfuture.com for updates. If you haven't listened to the other episodes in this series, again, go to myhrfuture.com and you can find all the previous episodes with Sharon Doherty, Edward Houghton, Didier Elzinga and Yvette Cameron. Goodbye for now and we'll look forward to you listening in again on the 25th of June.